0: Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast with me, your host, Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day, and I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. You may remember from last week how Pinchas told us about the intertestamental period, sometimes falsely called the 400 years of silence. And we talked about this group of pious Jews who were a subgroup of people who were very concerned with piety and being responsible for following God's commands. They were called the Hasidim and should not be confused with the modern Hasidic Jews, even though their names sound really familiar. I asked Pinhas to start with the Hasidim and to tell us how we end up with the Pharisees. What kind of context would we be in during the Second Temple period to meet a Pharisee?
1: So the Hasidim, they're not really described greatly because we don't really have a lot of documents to go by. But from what we can gather is the fact that they were really pious. They were, in a sense, very focused on being faithful to God. Mm-hmm. That was the most important thing to them. Whatever, whatever However they defined that, they, they were really striving to do the best that they can. And so then it may be, it's possible that that movement simply came to be a bit more cohesive movement just for the sake of the resistance, just to fight the, the Hellenism, just to push people back. And once the danger is gone, the tendency is not to unify anymore. It's just like any crisis. Crisis brings on unity. Mm-hmm. We form cohesive groups. We start organizing things when we're in crisis. Once the crisis is gone and the dangers have passed, we go our own separate ways. Because guess what? Those Hasidim, it's not like they're a religious class of people who sit around on a bench and all they do is pray and study. I mean, again, we're thinking about Hasidic Jews. You know? That is not their lifestyle these people have jobs. They have they have farms. They have businesses. They're artisans. Uh, some of them may be priests. Some of them may not, not be priests. Some of them may be scribes. We don't know. They have other occupations. It's not like that. They, ha- they don't have things to do. Uh, so the danger passes, and guess what? They put down their swords, and mm. they go back to doing what they were doing. So that's why it's possible to say that that movement may have just risen up for a period of time, and then it's gone away. Mm. And if you think about Pharisees, Pharisees is a movement, it's an ideological movement, okay, that, again, rose up. It rose up as a reaction in concern uh, in Judaism for purity, Mm -hmm. okay? Purushim, that's what it really means. It means separate ones, the ones who separate themselves. And, And what do they separate themselves in regards to? Well, they separate themselves in regards to purity. One of the core ideas of the Pharisaic movement was the fact that God has called us to a certain purity of life, And that means ritual purity. And that means washing of hands and of cups and all these things that you read about in the gospel. Uh, And and that is, again, something that they rotate around. So if the Sadducees are rotating around the idea of temple worship, then Pharisees rotate around the idea that purity in daily life, even outside the temple, at my dinner table. And that's Mm -hmm. why they're very selective on whom they're going to have over for dinner, who they're going to eat with, and how they're going to go through the ritual of washing their hands, and what procedure they're going to follow in order to make this dining experience really a holy moment with God, you know, and that, that separates them, you know, and that's that's sort of again, think of it as an emerging movement that comes out of a need, a spiritual need that they see, and people band together around that idea, and out of that comes this whole ideological uh, movement of people band around the thoughts of purity and how they hmm. should be practiced in everyday life.
0: Do you think that because, well, if the Sadducees are focused around the temple and therefore it's quite natural to find them in Jerusalem and Judea for Pharisees, could we expect to find them throughout the diaspora? Do we even know? I mean, we, we have them mentioned all the time in the gospels, which is a very right. land oriented text and a very small portion of land. But if they're concerned for daily purity, and a life of purity and separation, then could we find them all over the place?
1: Yeah, you, you can, absolutely. Because they're not tied to a geographical location. They're not tied to a particular place where their spirituality is anchored in. Their spirituality is much more global. You know, every room, every dining room, every living space can be made holy essentially through these practices of purity that they have
0: yeah.
1: uh, developed essentially. And so, yeah, you'll find them in Israel and you find them outside of Israel. So, I mean, everybody knows Saul of Tarsus, right? Right. Who said of himself, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. Guess what? (laughs) He's not Saul of Jerusalem. He's Saul of Tarsus, diaspora Jew, who obviously spent a lot of his time in Israel and living in Jerusalem and studying at the feet of Gamaliel and things like that. Yet, he Mm -hmm. is a quintessential diaspora Jew. Yet a Pharisee, son of the Pharisees.
0: Right. So why is it that we find the Pharisees in debate with Jesus all the time? I mean, it just seems a cursory reading. You would almost think that they're just contrarian people, which I don't think is necessarily true. But why, why is it that we have all these records of them constantly debating and pushing back against what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying?
1: There's probably several reasons why it's not, maybe it's such an easy answer, but let's just consider several possibilities. Uh, one of them, of course, is this is the most numeric movement. You know, numerically speaking, they're the most numerous. While there's just a handful of Sadducees there, they're small group, just elites, okay? Right. I, it would be less interaction, uh, obviously. And other types of Jews that are out there they're maybe not as numerous, or maybe they're more secluded, or maybe they're more focused in particular geographical mm. areas, mm-hmm. while the Pharisees are everywhere, and certainly in Galilee. And Yeshua spends a lot of his time in Galilee, so which is, makes sense that he would come in contact with them. When he comes to Jerusalem, guess what? They're still there.
0: Right.
1: So uh, there's a lot more contact. That would be one thing. Another reason why they argue, and by the way, these are not arguments, these are discussions. You know, If you notice that they're actually discussing theology and practice a lot of times, most of the time they discuss practice. And what they argue about is the nitty gritty stuff. They all believe the same ideas. It's just the application of those ideas, they differ. And that's what they duke out most of the time. How? How do we live out this commandment? We all know that we should follow this commandment, but how? And that's what they argue about. And they ask questions and answer them in a kind of way of sticking it to each other of, no, this is how I say, don't you want to believe the way I believe because this makes sense. And then there'll be some kind of, uh, you know, nice little quip and nice little compact answer to just sound so true and profound that you simply have to accept. And so there's these wisdom jousting that happens back and forth. And, And these are not arguments like you're wrong and I'm right. These are arguments. Is my way is better than your way? Mm. We both agree that we're moving in the right direction, but I think what I have to offer is a better way. And 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 the reason why these arguments are so passionate, sort of say, so colorful, is because they're arguing about something that really matters to them, something they truly care about. Right. So I have this crazy theory that that uh, Jesus's version of Judaism happens to be not that far off. From the pharisaic ideas and that's why he argues with them the most why because he has the most shared ground with them Hmm. like of course he shares ground with sadducees as i said he he affirms the temple he worships at the temple you know he participates in the whole temple system he he clearly does not think that it's all terrible and wrong and ruined you know not like the Kumarites, for example, who just kind of said, forget it, we're leaving. You know, right. this is corrupted beyond the point of recognition. We can't stand it. So he doesn't have a problem with that. He participates in the temple worship. So he does share some ground with him, but there's some ground he doesn't share. While with Pharisees, he shares this ground that, yeah, sacrifices are important, but there's even more important things in life. And and that would be the moment when he would say those words and the Pharisees would go, yeah, why? Because they are 100% in unity on that particular issue at that moment. Well, he finds something else basically to argue with them about that they're not in unity on, like the notions of purity that they have developed to such a degree where he would say, you know what, you guys have gone too far. That is mm-hmm. not what the Torah says. And now he's taken the Sadduceic perspective. Well, well, all right, let's stick to the Torah. What does the Torah actually say? So you'll see this back and forth in, in these arguments where obviously Jesus has his own understanding his own priorities. And sometimes their priorities simply do not align. And so he argues with different groups about different things and in different ways. Hmm. But that argument does not mean disharmony in a way that they don't agree on things. It's right. just how they find that their faith should express, how they should express themselves before God is is what they're really trying to work it out.
0: I'd like to issue you a challenge if you're up for it. Go read one of the Gospels and keep track of where Jesus is when he interacts with the Pharisees versus where he is when he interacts with the Sadducees. You can also note which topics they end up debating. And I would be so curious if you see the same correlation of details that Pinhas talks about here.
1: And in a sense, those arguments, I think, end up helping both of them to find a better Hmm. way. Because a lot of times the truth comes out in the midst of us discussing it. And so we need that. And if people didn't care about the truth, they wouldn't have these discussions at all. They would say, forget you, go away. I don't want to hear what you have to say. No, they listen to each other and they argue. Why? Because actually all of them want to find the truth. They want the best. They don't want second best, third best. They want the best, the proper way, you know, the most effective way to serve God.
0: And this type of diversity and arguing and discussing within even the Pharisaic movement is not unique to Jesus. Like, I kind of go back to, again, we can't make the Pharisees monolithic and say that they all agree. Because even prior to Jesus, I mean, we have two very famous Pharisaic teachers. Um, Mm -hmm. So Hillel and Shammai, maybe could you... You go into this in in much greater depth in your course, but maybe just for the sake of this conversation, can you tell us who they are and how that sets the stage for later discussions that we see in the Gospels?
1: That's a really good point, Cindy, that even within a movement such as Pharisees, which is not even such a huge amount of people, even there is a diversity within that group. And this is an ideological diversity, an interpretive diversity. Basically, we're talking about an approach to scriptures. How do you interpret it? There's a very strict, Mm -hmm. rigorous, more literalistic way of interpreting the scripture. And there's more relaxed way uh, of interpreting the scriptures. And that's really what we're talking about. the Hilal and Shammai, the two great elders that basically encompass those schools of interpretation. Mm -hmm. They, that's what they are. They're schools of interpretation, essentially. Just like you would have in any movement. you you would have people, as long as you have the source document, as long as you have the Torah, as long as you have the text, the Tanakh, whatever, you have that base religious text. Everybody knows that you can read that text and you could see different things in it, depending on the method you use to extract what it is that you want to read from it. And so So different people use different methods. And that's essentially what we had within the Pharisaic movement. Two different methods of approaching the, the scriptures. And those two different approaches obviously produce different results. And again, guess what? They argued. And they argued over those results. And they had some pretty bad disagreements, actually. If you're gonna read some of uh some of their own discussions, they get pretty nasty with each other. Again, we don't have a lot of ancient writings that go back to the days of Hilal and Shema preserved. What we have is conversations that were. Passed down for a couple of hundred years and then mm-hmm. later record it. And they say, oh, I was told by my teacher that this is what happened. And I heard this story. Mm-hmm. And then they share these anecdotal time stories. And then you sit there and you wonder, is that is that really true? Is that really how it happened? <laughs> but in some ways, I think those stories have a grain of truth with them because there was a contention. There was this rivalry. There was this idea of, of, of I'm right. No, he's right. You know, and so... Mm-hmm. There's that exists even within the movement that actually have a common ground base that they all agree on. Yet mm-hmm. there are some interpretations they disagree on, and there would be arguments that rising up in that, and that in itself again shows to us that arguing within the Jewish milieu is not necessarily disagreement. Right. It's just wanting to find the truth. That is how we get there by working it through, working it through, arguing it yeah. out, yeah. thinking it out loud, and 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 letting it sort of say settle. Somewhere.
0: Is it possible if we read between the lines, if we kind of squint, um, could we look at conversations Jesus is having with different Pharisees and go, oh, maybe that Pharisee comes from the Hillel school? Or maybe that Pharisee, just based on what they're asking and how they're asking, maybe came from the Shmai school? Do you think that's possible? Or is that taking way too many liberties with the text?
1: I like it how you say. If we squint, I'll, I think I think you're <laughs> I think you're onto something. I actually do. I actually do some of that in the course where I, I do highlight some passages and I say, okay, look, well, knowing what we know about this school and knowing what we know about that school, what do you think he's talking about? Oh, nice, who is he talking it. with? Why are they discussing this issue in that way? And a lot of times, it's the keywords and the phrases and the focus that they have. And if you know those arguments, if you know the religious lingo of that day. Okay, if you know the buzzwords that they're using, all of a sudden you associate those buzzwords with particular camps. Nice. It's Just like in politics today. I can start throwing out buzzwords from American political world to you and you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. Because we use these buzzwords in a very sort of, say, group affiliated way. And so the same thing happened in religious circles and ancient Judea in the first century. So in that sense, life is no different. But it's knowing that. It's it's what, what allows us to see deeper and see between the lines is, is the ability of having studied through these things and having been able to uh, look at it carefully and analyze it. And now mm. we could see more. So in that sense, knowledge opens a deeper understanding, a greater perception, a yeah. depth of ability to see something that maybe somebody who hasn't studied it can't.
0: And that is something that's really exciting about your course, I think, is because you introduce people to certain ideas, but then you go through and you're like, now that you know, see, you can actually see glimmers of it. And it's so much fun to go through that process of discovery with you. It's always exciting
1: to see something new in a text that you thought you got figured out. And and all of a sudden I I offer you something else. And all of a sudden you say, wait, there's way more to this that I knew. (laughs) And that's exciting. I mean, I don't care who you are. It's exciting to me when, when somebody shows me something like that, I get excited and I want to study and learn more and and get deeper and say, wait a minute, I'm missing something here. What treasures could be buried under there if I only understood this?
0: Yeah. I think
1: that's exciting.
0: So we were talking like in, in contrast to the Sadducees who are focusing on the books of Moses. And we, we said that we don't really have writings from the Sadducees themselves describing themselves. What about the Pharisees? The, what writings belong to them, and are we seeing them describe themselves, or are we looking again from the outside?
1: We are looking on the on the outside always, because it's not like we have, again, a very cohesive body of literature out there. What we have is later writings, rabbinic writings, which rem- remember uh, many of the, the rabbis of the later centuries, they come from the schools of different Pharisaic schools. okay? They come from the Hilal, they come from the Shammai, but then some of them also come from the uh, Sadducees as well. Most people don't realize that, that Rabbinic Judaism that emerges later on is really an amalgamation of all religious movements within Judaism mixed together and finding some sort of cohesive unity, again, for the sake of hmm. survival. We yeah. band together when we are being threatened, And so, you know, so we have a lot of this secondary material that comes out in forms of stories and legends and reports and, you know, teachings that are being passed down. And so a lot of that is where we get this information. So it's not like Pharisees left their own writings to us per se. So we are really talking about their descendants passing on the lore of this particular group. And, and again, we just don't have a lot of descendants of the Sadducees because right. they are a small group to begin with. Whatever the influence is, is all about the temple. When the temple is not there, their power base is gone all of a sudden. And hmm. and, and then, of course, they're not able to continue as a meaningful and a powerful movement uh, in that sense. So, yeah, we have bits and pieces. All of this we collect through various uh, sources of literature and try to analyze, read it side by side, compare, contrast, understand, clean up, sort of say, look at some of the presuppositions, look at some of the caricature ideas and say, well, probably wasn't like that. This is probably an exaggeration. That is probably an exaggeration. And then realize that the person who's speaking obviously has their own perspective. And through a multiplicity of perspectives, something more cohesive comes out.
0: Yeah. We were... Just talking earlier about how the Sadducees would not have cared so much for the prophets, because the prophets are simply just (laughs) quoting the Torah anyway. Uh, What about the Pharisees? What would they do with the prophetic writings or the um, Ketuvim, the other writings, the Psalms and wisdom literature?
1: The spirituality of of Pharisees uh, is much sort of say greater in that sense because they rely on a much greater material hmm. and that is actually why they're different ideologically from sadducees because they draw on a whole additional body of literature that essentially provides them the foundations for their beliefs hmm. okay you know take let's take belief in resurrection everybody knows what the biggest difference between pharisees and sadducees is the belief in resurrection yeah so why don't sadducees believe in resurrection the answer is very simple It's not in the Five Books of Moses. That's right. It just isn't. Read it, reread it, back and forth, up and down, left to right, whichever way you want to read it. It's not really there. Mm -hmm. Not explicitly, not stated. It's not there. Where do you find references about resurrection? You're gonna find, if anything, you're gonna find them in the Ketuvim. Okay, you to find them in the words of the prophets, certainly, and you certainly will find them in Psalms and things like that. And so. That is where this belief rises from. And, mm. and they see those scriptures being just as inspired, just as much words of God as the Torah, even though mm. they don't come from Moses. There's, these are still the servants of God. And they say, wait a minute, there's more here. And so yeah. they're, because their attitude is different towards these other writings, mm. their ideology takes on a new shape, a new form. They start believing things that the Sadducees would not necessarily believe. So And therefore, now their arguments are different. So this is like, I mean, sometimes, you know, this is a crude example, but it's like Jews and Christians arguing together, you know, Uh, where Jews only have the Tanakh, only the Hebrew Bible, right? And then, of course, all the commentaries that are out there, right? So you see, they have a whole another body of literature that they draw on to uh, shape their spirituality. Where traditional Judaism doesn't have that. They don't yeah. share that. And of course, they're going to have a different perspective on a number mm-hmm. of spiritual topics because they don't share that little piece right there that is quite significant, of course, to Christians and and really unknown to most traditional Jews. So that's, yeah. so you see, I mean, it may be a crude example, right? But you get the idea. So imagine right. the conversation between Sadducees and Pharisees being kind of like that. There's a whole new body of literature uh, that uh, Pharisees rely on, very much fond of it. And and really, beyond that, they have their commentaries on that. And and that takes it even to the next level.
0: Next week, we conclude our little mini-series on the diversity of first century by addressing who the Qumran sect is and how or if they are the same as the Essenes. And then we talk about the Zealots. You know that group that Josephus didn't like very much. And why is it he didn't like them?
1: What are Zealots driven by? They're nationalists. They want Israel to be Israel. They don't want foreign involvement. They don't want pagans coming in and messing things up. They don't want foreign powers running Israel essentially. So they're nationalists and they're willing to fight for it. And they're willing to go at great lengths basically to get what they want. Violence, yes, gruesome, awful, terrible violence, absolutely. If that gets them to be where they want to be, then that's good enough.
0: If you like what you hear on this podcast, you can enroll in the course using the link in the show notes, or just go explore all the other courses at IBC that are available to you with one small monthly subscription. Don't forget to take advantage of the free material you receive by using the coupon code Israel when you register. It's really just a special thank you from me for listening, subscribing, and telling others about this podcast. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds you hear. Thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. I look forward to next week.